This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Well, good morning, and welcome to the Friday morning break with me, Dr. Poppy Gibson. Very excited to have you with me on this Friday morning because I have got an ex-colleague of mine, Dr. Robert Morgan, who'll be joining us in a minute to talk to us about all things behaviorism. Now, what is behaviorism, um, you might ask? Um, well, that's what Robert is hopefully going to be coming along to talk to us about. Um, and maybe you might have your own experiences of behaviorism that you weren't even sure were behaviorism. So we'll be finding out a little bit more from that from Robert when he joins us. <clears throat> I do apologize. I think I've finally got the all the bugs that have been going around in our classrooms this week. Uh, hopefully you've been staying healthy and having a good week so far. Um, so just while we wait for Robert to join us, I wonder whether if you cast your mind back to when you were at primary school yourself, if you can think about those rewards and sanctions that might have encouraged you to behave in a certain way, um, whether that's through positive rewards, whether that's through negative sanctions. Um, and that's hopefully what Robert's going to talk to us a bit more about today, about those things that we can use in as part of our kind of pedagogical package to be able to think about what makes um, kind of a, a very purposeful learning environment. So great to see we've got lots of listeners here. Um, do feel free to use the live chat this morning. You can type questions in there for me. Hopefully everyone can hear me okay. Um, as my fellow hosts will know, is always our worry <laughs> on the radio. But I can see we've got Alan. So good morning, Alan. Good morning, Simon. Uh, good morning, Sarah, who's with us as well today. And I wonder if all of you look back to kind of your own time in primary school, whether you can remember those things that really stimulated you with your learning. Um, I know when I was a teacher, stickers were definitely a big um, kind of pull for the children in my class. And I remember my favourite stickers I ever had were cherry cola, scratch and sniff stickers. Um, even my year six children enjoyed uh, earning a cherry cola sticker. So what I really want us to think about today as Robert joins us um, is whether there are things that we should be doing in the modern classroom um, to really encourage our learners and to stimulate them. Obviously we want their learning to come from a place of kind of intrinsic motivation. We want learners to want to learn but maybe what we're going to think about today are what are those ways that we can really encourage them to learn if they do need a little bit of a nudge um, and whether that's through positive reinforcement um, and ways that we can nurture them to produce this this really um, kind of conductive learning environment. So I know that in a minute I'm going to be welcoming my ex-colleague uh, Dr Robert Morgan. Actually I think Robert might just have joined us. Good morning Robert. Hello, good morning Poppy. Can you hear me? Good morning. I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me okay? Wonderful. Um, so Robert I'm really excited. You're our very special guest um, coming along today as a past teacher and now current primary teacher educator. Um, we are going to be talking about all things behaviourism, if I'm correct. 
that's correct yes wonderful wonderful wow i'm really excited we've got kind of the next 55 minutes really to hunker down and reflect upon behaviorism in the modern classroom i'm really interested kind of what behaviorism might mean for you whether this is a good thing whether it's a negative thing how you think um we should really be encouraging learning in our classroom. We might talk about things like carpet time, for example. I know that's something that often gets teachers talking, whether they like it or not. Um, so hopefully uh, I've got a whole list of questions for you, if that's OK, Robert. <laughs> that's great. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. And thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so, Robert, maybe just before I launch my first question at you, I wondered if you're happy to maybe spend a few minutes, just tell us about you, about your own kind of education journey, your own background, your own studies, because I know I introduced you as Dr. Robert Morgan. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that as well and kind of what your current role is, if that's OK. Yes, thank you. Uh, I qualified as a primary school teacher way back in 1994 and taught in primary schools in Torbine, which is uh, in southeast Wales, before moving to London, where I taught in uh, Southwark and in Bexley. Um, I became a, an assistant head teacher um, during my time in, in London before moving on to University of Greenwich in 2007 for initial teacher education or initial teacher training, as it's also known. Uh, I currently uh, teach on um, undergraduate and postgraduate uh, QTS routes. And I've been doing that for uh, quite a long time now, 16 years or so. Oh, wow, and my, wonderful. And my specialist interest is the deployment of teaching assistants, uh, which I um, wrote my doctoral thesis about. Um, and I just think it's fascinating of how uh, teachers can work with these very skilled professionals in the classroom and how to um, use them uh, efficiently, as the uh, teacher standards uh, suggests. And it's that aspect of relationship. And I think I'm also very interested in uh, relationships within primary school classrooms and how relationships are uh, manifested and promoted, uh, rewarded or sanctioned even between uh, the teaching staff, the teacher, and, mm -hmm. and the children. So I think that's where, where my uh, interest uh, uh, rests. Oh, amazing. That is quite some background there, Robert. <laughs> and, um, and at the moment, am I correct that you're a senior lecturer in primary education at Greenwich? That's correct, yes. Uh, uh, senior lecturer, um, uh, specialising in the subjects to our training teachers, which is uh, education and professional studies, which is the sort of pedagogical aspect of it, planning, teaching, uh, teaching lessons, assessment records, behaviour management, relationships with teaching assistants and also religious education. Oh, excellent. Wonderful. Have you got a favourite module that you enjoy teaching at university level, Robert? I think I enjoy teaching students uh, across a variety of modules. Um, I think all the modules I teach are, are relevant, uh, pertinent to what the uh, students require. Um, I think modules are interesting when the students are uh, interested in the subject matter. So I don't particularly have a favourite. Maybe uh, 
the philosophical based elements of, of the modules that I teach, but I, th I think they all have a have a good purpose as long as the students are interested in them that keeps me happy <laughs> it's always easier when our learners are engaged isn't it <laughs> well definitely it's all part of that relationship the relationship between the uh, the trainee teachers and and their lecturers um but yeah all, all, all modules are are important excellent thanks robert so i guess then this kind of leads us quite nicely into the, the topic that you've selected for our guest show today which is really thinking about behaviorism and and not just in our primary schools because certainly as we unpick this a bit more today i'm sure that all the educators listening will agree that behaviorism is something that that is working at every level with people of all ages so interesting even for for me and you as university lecturers robert to think how how are our pedagogical choices affecting our learners and, and encouraging them or discouraging them from participating and from from getting the most from their education so maybe the first question i want to ask you robert what is behaviorism for you how would you define that what what do you see this term to mean well poppy i'd, I'd like to start off if i may by saying i'm not uh, particularly against behaviorism per se um i i think all uh, types of uh, pedagogies are, are, are valid. Um, I'm just wanting to um, raise the question of why behaviorism, uh, in my experience, seems to be the dominant pedagogy and uh, a dominant pedagogy at the expense of others. Uh, but for me, uh, behaviorism is the pedagogical theory that learning is acquired from a stimulus response relationship, which mm -hmm. characterizes and translates itself into teachers being the transmitters of learning, of knowledge. So for example, that would be characterized by children sitting in rows facing the teacher, whereby the, the pupil, the child, the learner is cast in a, very much a passive role. And this sort of um, didactic role gives more power to the teacher who is in control of the teaching, the pace, the assessment of the learning. Mm -hmm. and also may be known as traditional teaching methods that, um, that uh, politicians may be very keen to uh, get back to and to and to promote, certainly I think in the, in the last uh, 10 years. But this behaviorism is learning involves learning by association and the transmission of knowledge is a one way downwards trend from the powerful teacher to the um, to the passive children and therefore the learners are conditioned by qualities of passivity and tends to be studying for external rewards rather than the sake of learning mm -hmm. that's that's how i think uh, behaviorism is from a theoretical perspective and how it, it translates into the classroom but i'm not against behaviorism per se i think all pedagogies have um have merits within a the classroom and I think it's for the teacher to select the best one to do the to do the job at any given time mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering why it is that behaviorism is far more dominant at the expense of others for example constructivism or uh, social constructivism now if you remember mm -hmm. Poppy at, um, at the university where we both taught social constructivism was the favored pedagogy the one that we we taught our students, in, in fact, it's the one that um, uh, 
I mentioned to our, our trainees by as saying that this is the one that you might want to give a lot more consideration to mm-hmm. rather than the behaviorism that you'll see a lot more of uh, in, in um, schools. So I, I think, again, it goes back to that relationship. Uh, what is the relationship within this now dominant behaviorist pedagogy that, in my experience, uh, dominates um, primary education? It'd be interesting to see if the listeners uh, would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. And it's great to have got so many listeners here today. So listeners, do feel free to get typing any messages you've got for Robert as we go through our session on behaviourism today. But Robert, some really interesting initial points there. And and I guess what I'm taking from what, what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if teachers are choosing behaviourism as their kind of core pedagogical choice, this means it's much more teacher led. Whereas if we're looking at something like social constructivism, um, then I guess it is more peer led. Is that correct? Yes, I, I would agree with that. So just raising the question of why this is happening a, a lot more. But um, I also want to make a, a second point, if I may, Poppy, by saying I, I'm not blaming teachers for doing this. I think perhaps this comes from higher up within a school organisation and it makes us think about the hierarchy within the school. So I wonder mm-hmm. if it's a, it's a deliberate policy that teachers feel compelled to, um, to follow. Um, that, that would be interesting, especially whether our listeners would uh, agree or even disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Is, is it even down to the way that we at university level are, are teaching the next generation of teachers to teach? And it's hard, isn't it? Because I can see that we do want learners to, to want to learn from, you know, their inner drive, from that intrinsic motivation. But I mean, even as adults, don't we sometimes need that promise of reward or that threat of a sanction like I know the amount of times that I'm I'm meeting a deadline at work and I think okay if I, if I get this done I can treat myself to a takeaway tonight or so I guess do do we even use behaviorism as adults on ourselves like is that something we could ever move away from well I think I think we do and there are plenty of examples in our everyday lives of uh, of us being um conditioned by rewards and sanctions so it's it's not that I'm, I'm against it um I'm just querying why it seems to be so dominant uh, in, mm-hmm. in our classrooms and uh, even in society. Um, yeah, I, th- I think a good example um, would be when you get a, a new uh, phone or, or a new device and when you take it out for the first time, um, you, you like to engage with it, you like to play around with it. You use your existing knowledge to work out the new uh, the new apps on it and the new developments mm-hmm. in this new phone that you've got. You you would rather not listen to somebody tell you how to how to use your new smartphone. Um, so that might be an example where we also favour more constructivist based um, examples of learning and progressing in the, in our everyday lives. But I think we do need behaviourism. I'm not I say, I'm not totally against it. Uh, um, maybe working to a deadline and mm-hmm. the uh, and the sanction of of, of that drives you, compels you to finish it. But also, um, why do you do that, that, that thing in the first place? So it's from a, an intrinsic uh, reward, you know, the, the, the love of writing, for example, that, that might also need to be considered. Oh, interesting. It seems there are levels then to our behaviours. <laughs> it's not as straightforward as I thought this was going to be, Robert. So I, I guess my next question then, and, and I like that, idea of that phone that kind of anecdote of 
actually we do like to find things out for ourselves. And I, I know I can be quite stubborn if someone tries telling me how to do something. We do want to feel like we can be independent learners. So I wonder then why why is it a concern? Tell me more about your concerns about behaviorism in our classrooms. I think I think the concern I have it's is that it seems to be a dominant uh, pedagogy. Um, I don't see any other types of pedagogy. Now you might argue, well, that's when you go into schools and you only report to what you see. I, I would accept that as a valid criticism. But as, as I've been visiting schools uh, for uh, sixteen years or so, and previously to that, I've been teaching for for, for twelve years. So just under mm-hmm. a thirty-year career in primary education, I see an awful lot of it. The the question I have is, if we want children to be ambitious, uh, to take risks, to have autonomy, to to be problem solvers, to solve the the problems of the future that uh, people my age are probably contributing towards, how do we do that if we don't give them the freedom to, to experiment? Now, of course, I would also accept the valid criticism of some schools would say, well, we do that anyway. Uh, but I think, uh, first, Poppy, I'm just saying based on my experience in the schools that I go to, and I think, how can we empower students, uh, uh, empower the children in our classrooms to feel that they have a sense of ownership, a sense of responsibility, if they're being continually faced by uh, teacher-led learning, uh, teacher-led pace, teacher-led PowerPoints, where is the ability mm-hmm. of the child to come alive and to experience and, ju- and just to love learning rather than to be switched off by it? Yeah, definitely. No, that's that's a really good point. Um, so I wonder then, can, can we see maybe behaviourism is something that is more useful, though, in primary school rather than with adults? I mean, maybe, Robert, could you could you think back to when you were a primary school teacher? Were there particular rewards and sanctions that you know, were particularly useful that, as you say, you're not against behaviourism, you know, could you maybe tell us what were some really good rewards and sanctions you used as a primary teacher that, that were useful? I think the, the rewards and sanctions I, I used were to encourage the children to uh, realise why they're in my class and, and the whole point of learning. So why were they learning uh, particular mathematical operations? Why were they learning to write a particular way in English? Why were they learning to express their movements in physical education and I wanted to encourage them not by uh, strict um, uh, rewards and sanctions such as stickers or marbles in a jar or raffle tickets but I wanted them to to know why they were learning and for me if they knew why they were learning they were more likely to have a stake in it so I wanted to reward them far more by intrinsic methods than extrinsic. People might have said, well, it's just because you were quite tight and didn't want to splash out on <laughs> things from Poundland to reward them or or something. But I do remember... But, but Robert, doesn't everyone love a sticker from Poundland? Well, well, yes, or, maybe. Or other stores are available. <laughs> but, but maybe. Um, so I've, I've got something in front of me here, which is um, about promoting kindness. And it, and it says, you know, things such as um, say nice things to someone, make sure everyone is included. Uh, be inclusive of others, uh, assume the best in everyone. These are very um, intrinsic things. It doesn't say, you know, give someone something. But I suppose I would say that, you know, if someone gave you a small gift, 
uh, 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 you know, some biscuits or a box of chocolates, people would reward, would respond to that reward. So mm -hmm. yes, I do accept that um, intrinsic and extrinsic reward systems, particularly extrinsic reward systems through behaviorism are, are wanted and valued by people, yes. But I wonder whether we don't do enough of the intrinsic thing. But mm -hmm. um, I would say I did um, take my children once to McDonald's when they first brought out the 99 pence ice cream sundaes. And I said, oh. if, you, if, if over a half term, you, you really work well, and I see you all learning together, and I see a, a sense of you enjoying your learning, you're working hard towards it, I will treat you to McDonald's. And uh, that cost me about £30. So yeah, I did, <laughs> I did, uh, yeah, I did remember it. But, um, I, I, but yes, I, I did use some aspects of behaviourist extrinsic rewards uh, systems. Um, mm -hmm. Sanctions. Um, on the other hand, what I did in my uh, career in the classroom was to say, well, you need to think about if you don't learn something, how might that affect you in the future? So, you know, why is there a need to be um, uh, conversant with, um, with, this, with particular styles of writing? Why do you need to um, use good mental arithmetic? Why do you need to appreciate um, physical geography? Because there will be examples of that. So I, so I tried to get them to appreciate learning. Um, mm -hmm. very, very, I, very rarely did I want to um, sanction my children. I, I never believed in um, giving them demerits, and I see this in schools quite a lot. So, for example, there will be a chart, and everyone starts sort of in a, in a neutral zone. Mm -hmm. If they were to go up, the, the, the teacher will move a child up, say, from the neutral zone, from grass level, up to like um, a mountain level, and then up to a cloud level. Mm -hmm. Or they go the other way, so they start at the neutral level and they go down you know, underground, for example, and keep going down till they reach I don't know, maybe Hades or somewhere. <laughs> and, I just, and I'm just wondering, what, why do you do that? And that's that sort of public uh, mm. humiliation of a child like name being, praised, yeah, being praised or have the demerit. Mm -hmm. And it's that sense of public praise and public shaming, which uh, I was very... Uh, very very much against as a primary school teacher so mm -hmm. i'd like to just tell them you know perhaps you you might like to um consider your your um um your your, um, your disposition to learning as it were and i tried to encourage them a lot with dialogue that was more praise focused mm -hmm. so th that would be examples for my um my uh, teaching career probably. I love that I love that. thanks for sharing that Robin I like that I can see you know from kind of your own values that the focus shouldn't be on these you know consumerist uh, kind of external rewards and and I totally agree with you on the sanction point for anyone listening who is a teacher um, I'm sure we've all seen those behavior charts yeah normally with like a cloud and a, a sun if you do well you can move yeah. up to the sun or if, if you're be, um with behavior charts and the physical rewarding of things such as raffle tickets or stickers or um, achievement assemblies is that once you've got like the gold certificate or you've got like you know 20 stickers what else you know what else do you get so do we just create extra things mm -hmm. uh, extra things uh, for them and if you know you're never going to get um, even you know, two or three stickers what does that mean or do we as teachers say, well, so-and-so is missing out, I'd better, you know, create some extra rewards for them so they see that they, they're getting on and 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 how that must, must uh, be 
feel for it. Yeah, for a child. that that's a good point. I have to say, I mean, there has been times when I've been to see, um, you know, trainee teachers in schools, and and you do feel sometimes maybe these rewards have escalated a bit. You know, yeah. I've seen where it's it's collecting marbles in a jar, for example. So when people are, you know, praised, they can put a marble in the jar. When the jar's full, I've seen these things escalate. You know, yeah. instead of just being ten minutes golden time actually if they fill the jar they'll get a a cinema night with popcorn yeah. and and hot chocolate and i see i see what you're saying although but, i must say i would i would probably respond well if i knew i was gonna win a hot chocolate anyone yeah. listening knows that is my secret favorite drink you, but you might it is you hard, might get it? a yeah you might get a hot chocolate but let's let's take you back if you were a pupil in the class poppy so you get your dojo points for example which is quite a, a, a recent phenomenon and you get your 500 dojo points you would want more and more and more. But don't forget, behaviourism uh, emanates uh, from people like Watson. And of course, remember Watson, uh, who left academia and made a fortune in advertising. He used the basic principles of behaviourism to um, make advertising work. And of course, advertising is predicated on that you deserve it, you, you need more. And if you want more, you want it better, you're worth it type of thing. So you're continually rewarding this um, this inner drive to acquire more. But of course, um, only certain people can get lots more things, others, others don't. And I just wonder mm -hmm. whether it's an actual democratic uh, way of, um, of encouraging all children. And I think probably that's my worry about behaviorism. I don't think it's particularly democratic. So mm -hmm. if you don't want to be rewarded, why not? Uh, and who's to say that the rewards are valid? Who's to say that what the teacher is looking for is 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 valid perhaps the perhaps the child could be right and i'm just wondering whether there are other ways of um implementing this within the classroom oh this this is getting juicy robert we're going to take a break for the news in a minute but really interesting then to think you know what yeah is this what the children want have we actually asked children and, and i hear what you're saying about that democratic element because i know and for those teachers listening, when you've ever done things like Star of the Week, you know, sometimes you're, you're of course, bound by your school's behaviour policy and, and the reward policy of your school. So if you have things like Star of the, the Week, and we all know where, you know, you've given stars to many of those really hardworking children, but you've got, have you got to make sure everyone gets a star? Like, do they know that if they haven't been picked yet, it's going to be their turn? You know, where, where does it go from actually rewarding things or just making sure everyone gets a reward? Like I've seen Sports Day where, everyone gets a, a sticker for participating because we don't want to reward first, second and third because some people don't feel included. So yeah, even within the rewards itself, I think there are conversations to be had, aren't they, about fairness and, and equality. Um, oh, interesting. So Robert, don't go anywhere. We're going to take a short break for, uh, we've got some news and some interesting uh, segments here. But just before we take a break, I just want to give a big shout out because we've got lots of listeners, including another ex-colleague of mine, uh, the amazing IT guru, Sarah Lawrence. Hi, Sarah. Uh, I worked with Sarah when I was a primary school teacher. So it's amazing for Sarah to be here. Sarah was, um, we did some amazing stuff together with Lego Education, um, which is our theme from last week. And uh, Sarah was always the amazing person to keep the IT room organized and running like clockwork. So Sarah, great to see you here. And I think thinking about behaviorism, one thing, Sarah, that you always did so well is the way that you had this relationship with the children at the school that made them want to work for you and, and made them want to try without needs for, for stickers and things. So I think as well, Robert, one thing we'll, we'll pick up after the news is it's maybe comes down to our relationship with our learners 
and it, it shouldn't be about though you know their relationship with themselves our relationship with them um but I just want to say hello Sarah and hello everyone else listening as well um so many people shout out morning Simon morning Alan as well it's great that Alan's listening in um if any of you do want to ask questions during the news type them up into um the the little typey space and I'll pick them up with Robert after the break so don't go anywhere and we'll be back in about seven minutes time this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC has relaunched the 500 Words Writing Competition. The competition was first launched on Radio 2 in 2011 by its then Breakfast Show presenter, Chris Evans. The UK-wide contest continued until 2020 with Evans' successor Zoe Ball. It will return in September and will again be backed by Queen Consort Camilla. It will also be supported by Sir Lenny Henry. The announcement was made on Thursday the 1st of March, World Book Day, on BBC One's Breakfast News programme. BBC Breakfast presenter John Kay said, We are delighted to be championing 500 words, and look forward to stellar entries from talented, aspiring young writers. Up until 2020, the competition had received more than one million stories, all written by children and adding up to more than 440 million words. Judges on this year's panel will include teachers and librarians, as well as best-selling authors, which will include former children's laureate Mallory Blackman and Charlie Higson, author of five of the Young Bond novels. The grand final will feature 50 of the best entries from two different age categories and it will take place on World Book Day 2024. WhatsApp messages sent by government ministers and civil servants during the height of the pandemic have been causing a stir in many circles since The Telegraph published its series of stories giving insight into a usually private world. Several teaching unions hit out at what was described as contemptible comments made in the WhatsApps by former Education Secretary Sir Gavin Williamson. In the messages, Williamson appeared to suggest that staff were looking for an excuse not to work during the pandemic. There were also comments made by former Health Secretary Matt Hancock, who referred to teaching unions as a bunch of absolute arses. Sir Gavin was seen to reply, they really, really do just hate work. In a perhaps ill-advised series of tweets this week, Sir Gavin Williamson attempted first an apology, saying the comments were aimed at some unions and that he had the utmost respect for teachers. But many of those replying pointed out that unions are made up of teachers and that cannot be separated. They and union leaders went on to point out that teachers worked throughout the pandemic. National Education Union Joint General Secretary Mary Bowstead went on to say that she hoped that the present Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, did not share the contemptuous attitude whilst the current pay dispute continues. Whilst the pay disputes continue in England, they are possibly just getting started in the Channel Island of Guernsey. NASUWT leaders on the island say that local members have voted overwhelmingly 
in favour of industrial action over pay and workload. According to a report in Guernsey Press, strike action was backed by 9 out of 10 voters who took part in the ballot. 57% of members voted. Teachers in Guernsey have been offered a three-year deal with a 5% increase in 2022, a 7% increase in 2023 and an increase of 1% below inflation in 2024. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the EIS union has suspended all planned strike action after a new pay deal was offered. The 12.3% increase on the current pay rate has been welcomed by EIS leaders, who were said to be recommending its members accept the offer. The union will ballot its members on the deal, which would see teacher pay rise by £5,200 in April. Scotland's Education Secretary has welcomed the suspensions of strike action, but the NESUWT's General Secretary, Dr Patrick Roach, said the offer was paltry, and whilst it would ballot members, its campaign of strike action and action short of strikes would continue. Finally, while strike action causes disruption in schools, the Eastern Daily Press reports that some families have opted for family days out to local tourist attractions. Many of the attractions have created special offers and promotions to make the most of possible extra visitors on planned strike days. Banham Zoo and Africa Alive offered free entry for up to three children per paying adult. A spokesperson for the attraction said they hoped to provide an educational experience for children to learn about the planet and the environment. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week we're going to talk about tech for well-being. We all have tech all around us, but what do you do to strike a work-life balance when technology makes you available 24-7? During the pandemic, parents having the ability to directly message or email teachers increased, and for good reason. The issue now is some schools have continued to maintain this communication. Here are a couple of ideas to let tech make your communication a little easier. First, you need to read your school's policy on replying to messages. This will outline what you're expected to do. A lot of systems have an auto-response or an out-of-office reply. When you're taking a break, switching this on can send an automated message to let people know you will respond in a timely manner. Here is where you could quote the school's policy. Do not disturb is another setting you could use to stop devices notifying you between set times that you decide. You can also set this so certain people, like family and friends, can still alert you. Delayed response is a setting in a lot of email applications. If you want to create emails at unsociable times, you can set them to send at specific times, allowing you to work when you like, but not go against any timing set out in school policy. Why not tell us what you do with tech for your well-being at TT Radio Official? I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. So welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Really interesting about that two-minute tech. I know um, lately when I go to send emails in the evening, it says, do you want to send this in office hours? (laughs) So maybe I need to to have a think about using more do not disturb and uh, and sending things in working hours. But uh, it is hard sometimes, isn't it, to find that work-life balance. But welcome back, Dr. Robert Morgan. 
Thank you, Poppy. We've got um, our special guest here. For those of you just joining us or listening back on the podcast, we have got the wonderful educator, Dr. Robert Morgan, senior lecturer from University of Greenwich in London with us here today. And we're talking about all things behaviorism. So for those of you listening, we will probably think of this quite simply as being about rewards and sanctions, things we're doing in our classrooms at any level, because I know I can see we've got some of you here from the primary school, secondary, college or HE, like me and Robert. So we're, we're really kind of unpicking what does good practice look like in the classroom and, and what part should behaviourism play or perhaps not play, according to Dr Robert, um, in this so, um, Robert, welcome back. I've got another question ready for you to go, if that's okay. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I've had a question sent in, actually, from one of our listeners in the first half. Um, they heard that you mentioned PowerPoints in the first half, and they have asked, um, Dr. Robert Morgan, is there an alternative to PowerPoints? I wondered if you had um, a response to that question for our listener, please. Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. Um, like I said, I, I'm not particularly against any forms of behaviorism. It's just when behaviorism becomes the dominant form of pedagogy. So let's take PowerPoints, for example. If your teaching is characterized by uh, PowerPoints and lots of them through different uh, subjects within the school uh, week, I would say, why, why would that be? Um, so the PowerPoint is really the, the newer form of the old blackboard. So the information written on a screen that is displayed to um, to children. And I've seen uh, lots of examples of subjects taught where the dominant form of communication is is through the PowerPoint, where the teacher uh, merely replicates what's, what's on the screen. So I just question uh, why that would be. So if you think about a classroom, uh, the, there's no such thing as the front of a classroom. Um, if you think of any square or rectangular based classroom, the front is usually characterized where the children are facing this, uh, this uh, interactive whiteboard on which there would be a PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. And you know, wh why would that be? Why is there a need to uh, f have all children facing uh, one way to access information? So can information be, um, be put on their tables? So can they have it on uh, sheets of paper, for example, or can the children actually construct what they need to learn, construct their own information uh, mm -hmm. in order to get on with a particular task? I would accept that there is a need to be direct and imply behaviours pedagogy. So the children need to read something and acquire something at the start. But um, why PowerPoints all the time? So you might want to think about the, uh, the children's creation of their own learning. So you know, no need to actually face any any front of a classroom. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, maybe that all goes back to the old Victorian style classroom with the teacher at the front and the children being the empty vessels to be filled. What do you think? Um, yes. Um, so sitting in rows, for example, and um, I have seen children sat in rows um, in, um, in year one. And I think that's that's quite a, quite a fascinating thing, and I just again ask the question why. Um, so the constructivist based and social constructivist based pedagogies uh, favour children sat in tables, and that's why mm -hmm. you have 
uh, groups of children sat around tables in order for them to talk or to have that space in order to have resources in front of them for them to uh, engage with. Um, behaviorism is cheap, behaviorism is efficient, and behaviorism is characterized by uh, extreme rewards and sanctions. And I think a lot of schools employ behaviorism because it is cheap and effective. You only need to employ one teacher. Um, you don't need teaching assistants, uh, particularly for effective behaviorism. All the children are focused on you. Uh, there is little time for a discussion. There's little time for the, the children to determine their own learning. The pace is a lot quicker. And mm -hmm. therefore, the efficiency lies in the transference of knowledge in a quicker amount of time the phrase pace uh, with little expenditure interesting but I, I wonder so to pick up on that because I've seen Robert I'm sure you've seen as well and I'm sure our listeners have seen in China for example they have got classrooms with 60 80 children in a room normally in England we're normally capped at 30 but I have seen how efficient to pick a word you use there Robert how efficient that teaching can be when the teacher is stood at the front, you've got 60 to 80 children sat in silence learning. What is the negative of that, though? Is I mean, is efficiency well, not always a good thing? Well, yes, efficiency is, is good. We need to think about the budgets that our schools working with in, in these very tight uh, budgetary uh, constraints. Um, yes, you, Poppy, you said they are learning. Yes, and behaviourism is, is particularly uh, efficient at that. But... How can you tell um, whether the children are not learning? And where behaviorism has um, a valid criticism is that the teacher, apart from summative assessments, is unable to gauge formatively how the children are progressing. Mm -hmm. um, so let me give you one, one example, um, and I see this a lot of times. So the thumbs up, thumbs down technique, where a, in my experience, a training teacher will ask the children, did you understand that? and that she says thumbs up or thumbs down and they all do the thumbs up and the teacher will gaze across the classroom note that all the children have their thumbs up and, move <laughs> yeah. on. and i say well why would you do that uh, they say well it's a quick way of knowing who's who who has learned it but i said how can you prove learning and this is where behaviorism uh, has a has a flaw only if it's the dominant pedagogy so the flaw would be well how do you know that um Temi Toppe at the back didn't get that. Uh, just because she's got her thumbs up, how do you know? And of course, this brings us into um, the techniques, for example, dialogic, dialogic assessment based practices where you can then engage, you know, talk, talk to me how you, how you got the answer or even the confidence to, to, to say, well, no, I, I don't understand it. And I just wonder whether mm -hmm. behaviorism allows children to say, you know, miss, um, I don't understand it. And I just wonder whether there's so much of a, an emphasis on reward that if you are perceived to um, to learn or you want to give the impression that you're learning, you do it for a reward. Whereas you might say, stop, let's slow it down. I don't understand it. And uh, can you help me? Can you, can you re-explain it to me? Can you go back? And I don't think behaviorism allows for that. And so, yes, you, some people, most people, probably all, uh, uh, children could learn through behaviorism, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. how do we really know? So it gets us to question what is actually meant by learning. And that brings us on to a, a separate, probably a separate radio show about the effectiveness <laughs> of formative assessments. But behaviorism, to be fair, um, is characterized by very efficient summative assessments. 
interesting so i hear what you're saying there maybe behaviorism means the learners are trying to respond to the teacher instead of respond to the learning yeah um, so I, I so putting so. their thumb up yeah is, isn't a clear indication of if they've learned anything is it it's a clear indication of please move on or it's getting to play time let's let's move on i want to go to play or mm-hmm. i don't want to um embarrass myself by revealing i'm not learning or i don't understand because my friend my friend understands and i want to be like my friend possibly interesting so um yeah also bearing in mind that that robert and i are talking mostly about the uk here and we do note that teaching is different around the world as i just mentioned what i've seen in china you know one one teacher with uh, no teaching assistant and a room double the size of our uk classrooms and equally if we look to some of the excellent maths teaching for example singapore which we have tried to adopt over here in the last decade uh, but teachers over there have to have a, a maths degree i think in order to teach maths whereas that's not not the case for many of our uk teachers um before i ask the next question robert i just want to shout out we've got loads of new listeners joining hi joni uh joni has joined us today um so welcome joni haven't seen you here before so nice to have you here uh joni tells us she's here from new brunswick I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, we're just talking with Dr. Robert Morgan about behaviorism. Um, and Robert, another thing you mentioned in the first half that, that I've written down a note to ask you about, you did not sound like uh, you were keen on carpet time. So I know for many primary teachers that might be listening, carpet time is where we ask our class to sit on the carpet, uh, normally at the start of a lesson or when they come back in from lunchtime or for the register. Actually, when I was a, a primary school teacher, I used to love key stage two. So I, I actually preferred the older children in the primary school. The problem for me being um, five foot one is most of the year six children were taller than me. So I actually I used to quite enjoy um, humbling uh, and enjoying them sitting on the carpet and us having this very different space instead of them looming over me um, as they came in from playtime and it was really interesting I remember a lot of people thinking why are year six on the carpet like surely they've they've gone past that they should only be at desks now but actually they used to enjoy coming in sitting in that relaxed way you know with their peers in a space of their choice so I before I ask you this question Robert I can and maybe a fan of carpet time but i got the i got the feeling you're not was that um, correct <laughs> well yes i'd have to confess poppy i'm not a fan of carpet time um, right, tell me tell me more tell me well, more probably because i'm not five foot one but um <laughs> I think, the thing about carpet time for me is if i were to look at it from the viewpoint of a parent so um you know, carpet time is probably the most frequent example of mass organization within any classroom. And all the children sit probably on the most uncomfortable space in the entire classroom or the entire building on the floor. And they can be on this woolen covered hard surface for probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes per session, per lesson, several times a day. And uh, I think I don't think I could sit on the on the carpet. So I would question the comfort aspect of it. Now, I do know that in Scandinavia, particularly Sweden, children are allowed to sit on beanbags on mm-hmm. any point of the floor. But for me, um, you know, it's it's the uncomfort. It's the discomfort that, that, that the children would, 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 uh, would face. So I do ask uh, teachers why they do this. And they say it's, it's for control. I can see the children and the control, ch- children can see the board. 
So I say, are you telling me they can't see the board from the back of the classroom? Um, so if there's a need to see the board, I don't believe that they need to be on the carpet. I think it's a security thing for the uh, for the teacher. And again, when they sit in on the carpet, they tend to sit in rows. And in some carpets, they actually have squares that are either numbered or they have particular insects. <laughs> yeah, I have, have seen those. And, they, yeah, seen and those. each child is confined to a box. Reminds me of a call centre. And I'm just thinking, well, what, what message does that say to the children? Where the teacher, more than more often than not, is sat on a very comfortable chair higher up. And straight away, there's this um, hierarchical power imbalance between mm. teacher and child, giver of knowledge and receiver of knowledge, comfort and discomfort. So that's why mm. children stop, you know, messing around, want to go to the toilet um, in, in, in rows. So I... I I question whether there is need for carpet time because you don't do carpet time for music or carpet time for uh, physical education. It always seems to be for the dominant subjects of maths and English. You have to be in this tight space, you know, to receive lots of information before the freedom of go back to your tables and get on with, quote, the learning, mm -hmm. the middle part of the lesson, then come back to the carpet for the plenary. So I'm just wondering why carpet time exists and um, I would argue that carpet time is really a, a security blanket for the teacher to implement conduct behavior behavior management control rather than for any purposeful um, type of learning maybe so I hear what you're saying Robert maybe it is then it, it's not that these tools are right or wrong maybe it's how they're used because yeah. actually what, what you're saying I have seen those carpets I'm sure some people listening might have seen those carpets where yeah they have 30 squares and the children all have a set place so th the difference for me I just saw this as a space where children could come actually get to choose where they sat because often we were using ability groups uh, or mixed ability you know on the tables. so the carpet space was a more fluid space and I also another thing that I liked about carpet time personally was not saying right it's 15 minutes at the start of maths but I use it as a fluid space so um, the children could go back to their tables, but if they were struggling, come back to the carpet. It's yeah. a signal for me that you want uh, some scaffolding, some more support with your learning. So I, I quite enjoyed it being a fluid space, but I think you're right that that where any tool can become actually detrimental is where we see it just as, as something that must be done, not that something that, that is purposeful. Yeah, I would agree with you that there's carpet time can be used um, sparingly especially for uh, intimacy where you want the children to maybe listen to a story or you might want to talk to them about a PSHE related issue or you might want to um, talk to them about something sensitive mm -hmm. so yes it's 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 good for that but if it's used all the time I would just raise the question why they you mentioned ability groups and again that is a classic feature of behaviorism I don't know whether you'd like us to explore that because I have a, an issue with that as well <laughs> I'm I'm conscious we've got ten minutes, but let's give it a go. What What are your thoughts on on ability then, ability groupings? Well, again, um, predicated on my experiences of what I see in schools, um, ability groups tend to be um, uh, composed because of the measured ability in two subjects only, mathematics and English, which are usually driven by uh, the SATs agenda. Um, I wonder whether we have ability groups in physical education, music, art and design, um, history. Or do some teachers say, well, for example, in geography, because it's writing, sit in your English ability groups. And I'm just wondering, even within, for example, 
um, top group maths, for example, um, mm -hmm. are the children all of the same, supposedly high level throughout the whole uh, range of mathematical um, types of learning? So geometry, algebra, mental arithmetic, is, is that really the case? And how do you ever move from, say, blue group right to the top to red group? And is it me or is it the more sides that a group has, the, the higher the ability of the group? So hexagon group is more able than, say, triangle group, which only has three sides. And, and what does that say? Is it all to do with a reinforcing hierarchy? And again, mm -hmm. this, this, this thing of hierarchy is um, something I see in schools a lot. So, for example, if you walk into the foyer and you'll see um, the, after you signed it, you'll see the photographs. At the top, it'll be the, you know, the, exec, the chief executive officer, you know, very much a corporate driven thing. And I think this is where lots of schools are getting their behaviorist tendencies from. Then you'll see the, the leadership team, then you'll see the teachers. Further down, you'll see the TAs. Right down at the bottom, you'll see the midday meal supervisors. And profitable, that will be the poor lollipop person. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what this hierarchy, and I would, I would argue that this hierarchy is the outward face of behaviorism, which um, not only operates in schools, it's, it's becoming increasingly uh, more frequent in society. Interesting. And I'm sure many of us listening will have, you know, these mixed views on ability groupings. And again, I think it's back to, to what we were saying, Robert, that as long as we're using them in a purposeful way, like we can see that, you know, if we group children with people with a similar ability, they can work on certain tasks together. Um, yeah. yeah, interesting. But or when is it just being done? Because that's how the school is saying they should do it is is. So so it's like we mustn't forget the, the learner at the centre of, of our actions, isn't yeah. it? So if we, if we neglect the, the learner, the child at the centre, and we don't ask that question, why do I do it? We, I think we are guilty of just merely replicating someone else's pedagogy or replicating the values of the school. And I think we need to question that. So mm -hmm. let me just say, I'm not against behaviourism, as I mentioned at the start of our radio programme. I'm just wondering if it becomes a dominant pedagogy, the dominant way of organising it, why, why does this happen? What does it mean for me as a, as a critical reflective teacher? And what does it mean on, on a basic level for, for the child? You know, mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I think these are questions that are worth um, asking. Definitely. And I think these are some questions that, you know, we need to continue to reflect upon ourselves as educators, that, you know, it's good to break these down with our trainee teachers. I'll re make sure we recommend these, this show to our students, Robert, so they can have a think about, you know, as they move forward to become the next generation of teachers, what what should their classroom look like? Um, so we've got six minutes left. I've got one last question from me, Robert, if that's okay. And I can see Alan in the chat has asked a question as well um, about the future of teaching. So if, if you're happy, can we squeeze in two more questions before you go, please? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, the last question from me, we've spoken about behaviorism today and, and how you know, there may be positive elements we can take from it, but is there something deeper in our pedagogical uh, toolkit that we can use? So the final question for me then really, should there be something else in our pedagogical repertoire? Um, what would your, your final kind of point on that be for any educators listening? I don't think there needs to be um, anything else. I think teachers need to um, use and implement different types of pedagogy um, judiciously. Um, mm -hmm. I like to call it... Um, wardrobe pedagogy so if you were getting dressed you would look at the particular weather conditions and you would think well what do i need 
to uh, go out in the rain? What do I need to go out in the snow, which is very pertinent today? What do I need to go out on a hot summer's day? And you would choose your wardrobe that way. And I think it's the same for teaching. If I were to teach um, religious education, what pedagogy would I employ? How would I deploy my TA? Um, because if I were a constructivist, I would deploy my TA in a constructivist way. What resources do I need? How would I arrange the furniture? So it's not that I'm anti-behaviorist. I would say that the anything else would be, well, what pedagogies should I be employing to maximize the learning efficiency for the children? How would the children benefit? So behaviorism could be the answer. So constructivism could be the answer. Social constructivism could be the answer and others and also mixtures of those as well. So a mixed pedagogy mm -hmm. could be valuable. Excellent. So the, the final answer really is that there is no one answer. I like that, that idea of wardrobe pedagogy. I like that. Um, so this kind of leads into the, the question we've got from a listener here from Alan, um, because I guess the question is, Robert, will any of this matter in the future as the landscape of pedagogy changes? Because Alan has asked us, with the introduction of all these new search engines that can actually write a complete essay on any subject, and can even input spelling mistakes, how would this affect the future behaviour and input of future pupils? Will this affect the way teachers behave towards future tech? So thank you, Alan, for that really thoughtful question. I guess then this is about the chat GPT yeah. that has been hot on uh, the education line wire uh, this year and in, in the past few months. What's kind of your response to Alan there, Robert? Yeah, well, thank you for the question, Alan. Um, yes, this is an article I wrote using chat GPT. And, um, it reminds me of what George Orwell said, that um, if you don't do the thinking, someone else will do the thinking for you, which is quite a, 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 an ominous warning for us in society and certainly, certainly for us as uh, teacher educators. Um, I'm not doubting the, the marvellous um, way that this technology, this artificial intelligence can use, but I think teachers need to be very, very careful of who's doing the thinking, what's my input in it, how do I know that it's accurate, and I, mm -hmm. think, and I think it has to be a balance. I think artificial intelligence will be um, in schools within the next five years. I think we will have, um, I've always made the prediction, we would have um, teachers appearing in the form of holograms and teaching that way uh, within Ooh. the classrooms. Just like you can make 3D images come out of uh, computer screens or interactive whiteboards. But I think artificial intelligence needs to be... Um, treated very, very carefully and say, why am I using this? Why is it doing the thinking for me? Or where's my input? Where's my professionalism in this? Where's my expertise in this? So I'm not against it. We need to treat it very, very carefully. And of course, this is a good opportunity for uh, people like Poppy and myself, because we can then research um, teachers' use and wariness of such uh, technology. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And thank you for that response to, to Alan's question. It, it is interesting, isn't it? And just to take your point there on holograms, I know that during COVID, obviously, we were teaching remotely. It does pose the question, you know, that, that students could learn without that human interaction in the room. And um, yeah, I quite like the thought of a, a virtual me, save me having to actually <laughs> do my makeup every day and just send a hologram in my place. <laughs> uh, this is something definitely for another show. And I know some of my fellow hosts on Teachers Talk Radio, I'm sure are doing some bits on AI. So do look through our back catalogue on the podcast. But um, Robert, this actually brings us to the final minute. So I just want to say a huge thank you for coming on Teachers Talk Radio today. Have you enjoyed the experience? I have thoroughly enjoyed it and I just want to say thank you to the listeners and thank you for the invites. Very kind of you. 
Thank you. And Robert, just before you go, if anyone wanted to get in touch with you, uh, follow you, contact you, are you happy to tell us somewhere that they could find you if they wanted to get in touch? Uh, not only get in touch, but if you wish to um, write uh, write articles for me um, on behalf of Ooh. Primary First uh, through the National Association of Primary Education, uh, you can do so, or you can email me on r.a.morgan at gre.ac.uk or follow me on Twitter at pr1stjournal. Wonderful. And what we'll do, Robert, we'll add all your social tags to uh, the next couple of posts we share on Twitter so people can come along, follow your amazing Primary First Journal, uh, which I think I've got an upcoming article in, if I'm correct. <laughs> indeed. It'll be out in um, late March. Oh, wonderful. So people need to get subscribing and so to make sure they get an issue. <laughs> Uh, wonderful. So right on time, Robert, just thank you again for joining us. Thank you to everyone for joining us. And I'll see you all again in two weeks time. Take care and enjoy the weekend, Robert. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. This show is brought to you in partnership